2 Kings 24, which means next week is our last lesson, potentially. Because here's the thing. Next week is supposed to be our Cahoots game. Woo! So my question to you guys is, do you want to do, and I'll take uh, from people online, leave a comment, let me know what you think as well. Do we want to do Cahoots next week? Or do we want to put it back a week, finish Second Kings completely, and then do cahoots? Okay. So we'll put it back a week. That way everybody can be here. We'll finish Second Kings entirely. And then we can have our last cahoots in the books of history. And then we're going to move on to our doctrine series. So very exciting stuff happening. Um so we're going to go from a very excited, positive note like that to in 2 Kings 24, uh, dealing with a lot of tragedy. Yeah. 2 Kings 24, the title of our lesson this morning is Israel's Tragic End, Part 1. That is the title, because chapter 24 is Part 1, and chapter 25 is Part 2. Israel's Tragic End? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That is a fairly appropriate title <laughs> for the way things go, as you'll see. Our first uh, main point this morning is Israel's sentencing is declared. Israel's sentencing is declared uh, almost like if you were to stand before a judge in court and they would tell you your sentencing if you were going to go to jail or if you owed a fine of some kind, uh, they would announce your sentencing. And here in the first uh, about nine verses of chapter 24, we see Israel's sentencing declared by the Lord. It says in verse 1, In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldees, and bands of the Syrians, and bands of the Moabites, and bands of the children of Ammon, and sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord which he spake by his servants the prophets. Uh, if you want to read of such prophecies that it's speaking about in this particular verse, you can read the book of Jeremiah. For one such instance, Jeremiah prophesied during this time the end of days for Israel and Judah. Uh, verse 3 says, Surely at the commandment of the Lord came this upon Judah, to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he did, and also for the innocent blood that he shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his stead. And the king of Egypt came not again any more out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken from the river of Egypt under the river Euphrates all that pertained to the king of Egypt. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned in Jerusalem three months. Three months. And his mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of El Nathan of, Ju of Jerusalem. 
And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. So we see the sentencing declared by the Lord there, saying, no, this is the end of days for Israel. Uh, but we see firstly in verse 1, it says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up. So we see finally the infamous Babylon coming against Judah, coming against Jerusalem. Now we saw uh, the Assyrians come up, and what made the Assyrians so unique is because they are the ones that led Israel, the northern nation, into captivity. right? So it's just Judah. That's all that's left of Israel now. But they were the ones who had the rightful kings upon the throne, the, the bloodline of David. They had Jerusalem, where the temple was. So it was considered more of the proper, um, true, divinely blessed part of Israel anyways. So when Israel was taken into captivity, Judah still stood as God's people. But now we have the Babylonians coming along, and Babylon's come down, and they are the beginning of the end. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest and most powerful of the Babylonian kings. His name means Nebo, who is the ancient Mesopotamian patron god of literacy, the rational arts, scribes, and wisdom. So Nebo is the protector against misfortune. That's what, his, that's what Nebuchadnezzar means. Nebuchadnezzar is the same Babylonian king mentioned all throughout the book of Daniel. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Sorry, Rakshak and Benny? Yeah. 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 Uh, he is the, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the mean pickle that made them eat all the chocolate bunnies. Gotcha. Yeah. Bring on cahoots now. Right, now that we've got all that squared away. Uh, but Nebuchadnezzar, this is the start of his reign, sort of. He's coming down and he's taking control of Judah and Jerusalem. But then it says in that same verse, in verse 1, that Jehoiakim became his servant three years. So what that means is when Nebuchadnezzar came down, he agreed to whatever terms Nebuchadnezzar came up with, Jehoiakim did, Jehoiakim did uh, in order to spare his people further war. Uh, Je Jehoiakim was chosen um, by the Pharaoh to rule in Israel when his brother Jehoahaz was imprisoned by that same Pharaoh, and you can see that in chapter 23. We didn't get to that last week uh, because we were focusing on the end of the life of Israel's final good king. Uh, but at the end of that chapter is the rest of this and the setup of Jehoiakim. So Jehoiakim was set up when his brother was taken as a prisoner by Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh set Jehoiakim over Israel as its new king. Uh, Jehoiakim was chosen to be king by Pharaoh because Pharaoh thought him to be weak and easy to control. And we know that he was right because chapter 23 tells us that he taxed the people more than they normally paid in order to pay... Sorry in order to pay Egypt the silver and gold that they had demanded. So this teaches us a lot about the kind of person Jehoiakim was. He was the kind of person that was weak-willed. He rolled over for the first person to show him aggression. And uh, while 
peace is important. There are some things that are even more important. And that's a hot topic no matter who's president. And no matter which political party's in place, some people think that we ought to pick every battle and fight every war. And some people think that we should avoid war whenever possible. And some people think the truth is somewhere in the middle. I like to fall in that category. I like peace, that's fine, but sometimes you got to stand up and fight for what's right. Sometimes war just can't be helped. Jehoiakim surrendered much for a false peace. It wasn't even a real peace. Because once the sharks find out that there's blood in the water, they will frenzy. And as soon as these nations find out that Jehoiakim is a weak-willed king, they're going to come, and they're going to pillage, and they're going to take everything they can from Israel. Sometimes you've got to learn to stand. Jehoiakim didn't do that. And while it's important for a Christian to represent the Lord with compassion and patience for people, it is equally important that we stand up for the Lord and for His Word. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. That's what the Bible tells us to do. This isn't just to some vague uh, church that has no personal application. He's writing this to all Christians. That's us. And he tells us to stand fast. To stand fast means to stand strong, to stand firm. Stand fast in the faith. That we ought to know why we believe what we believe. If somebody came up to you this morning and asked you, what do you believe about baptism? Do you believe in a kind of baptism where you go completely under the water? Or do you believe it's okay to sprinkle? Do you know what your answer would be? And if you know what your answer would be, and they asked you, why do you believe that? Could you show them in scripture why you believe what you believe? If someone came up to you and asked you, do you believe that the King James Bible is the authorized version for the English-speaking people? And if your answer is yes, can you tell them why you believe what you believe? See, these things are important. I don't want anybody in this church in its history now or in the future to ever just take what I tell you and just spoon feed it. Amen. I want you to know why you believe what you believe. Because we do have reasons for everything that we believe. I want you to know why you believe in creation. We don't just believe it because that's what we're told. There are reasons. I want you to know why you believe in the Trinity, the three persons of God. I want you to know why you believe in the individual priesthood of the believer, that we don't need a priest to go between us and God, that we can pray and get a hold of God and ask for confession and ask for forgiveness of sin on a personal level anytime we want to. Of course, God forgives you of your sin at the moment of salvation, and you can't lose that. But there's more than just a legality to our sin. There's a personal relationship that is broken by our sin, and that's why we ask God to forgive us, not legally, personally. 
the individual priesthood of the believer. It gives us the power to do that. We need to know why we believe these things so we can defend them out in the world and maybe even convince somebody else to believe in the Lord and his word. But more importantly, I want, to, I want this church to develop Christians that know what to believe on their own. And if their pastor's not standing next to them, that they don't know what to believe. I want us all to be strong, stand fast in the faith. Don't be like Jehoiakim, that we should fight the spiritual fight of faith. This is what Paul was doing in his day. This is what he was being chased out of town for. This is what he's being stoned for. All the great adventures he had was because he was standing in a tabernacle somewhere, and he was debating these very things with people in that tabernacle. They're no less relevant today. These debates are being had in places like Congress and the White House. They heavily impact our world in this very day and time. They debate things like, what are we supposed to do with Israel? And people debate what they believe about Israel and how it impacts our country. These things aren't just an abstract concept of things that we stand up here on a Sunday and talk about and then don't affect us the rest of the week. The things in the Word of God impact your life every single day. So we see Jehoiakim became his servant for three years, but only three years, because then after that, something happened that nobody really expected. Jehoiakim rebelled. It says, then he turned and rebelled against him. There in verse 1. Jehoiakim, who's chosen by Pharaoh because he was weak-willed, who Nebuchadnezzar allowed to stay king because he was weak-willed, nobody thought much of him, thought he was a wimp, a weenie, a loser, and was easily taken advantage of, grew a spine, stood up and learned how to defend himself and his people. And we finally see him, him defending them in a way that nobody thought he would. That's why the rebellion worked, as you can see as you continue to read this passage. It worked because Nebuchadnezzar never even assumed that it was even going to happen. But you know, as the years roll on for Israel's history, you can see how their kings go from being mighty men with a fervent strength of will, like, for example, Saul. Don't always agree with his decisions, but you can't doubt that he was a strong leader. Right? People knew he was king, and when he spoke, things happened. He had a fervent strength of will. David, there's no denying David was one of the greatest kings Israel ever had. Uh, king Solomon is to this day revered as the greatest leader, uh, the greatest human leader, rather, that Israel or the world ever knew. To weak-willed leaders like Jehoiakim, or like Hezekiah, or like Manasseh. If you're sitting here today and you're thinking, well, we're just now talking about Jehoiakim, so I kind of know he's talking about there, but I don't really remember Hezekiah or Manasseh or how they were weak-willed. It's because you probably don't remember much about those men. Because they were weak-willed men, they were tossed about with the will of the people, and uh, they didn't make much of an impact on Israel's history. You never get much done trying to make everybody happy. Not everybody's going to be happy. Somebody's going to be upset. 
Let's just make sure that someone's not God. I would rather have the Lord on my side and have the world mad at me than have the world on my side and the Lord mad at me. Yet even here at the end, we see in Jehoiakim a determination to fight back against such impossible odds. There's still a flicker and a flame of fire to fight back. The daily struggle we face each day within our soul can make us a bit weary of battle. It builds within us a desire to surrender for just a bit of peace. Sometimes you want to say, you know what, I just need to give in and just just be done for just a little while, catch my breath, take a break, and then I'll come back. And that's the weariness of spiritual battle that comes over us day after day after day. But if we surrender, we allow ourselves to be blinded to the truth and alienated from God. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. That's what we must do. We must fight the good fight of faith. And even if you found yourself in spiritual surrender for many years, like Jehoiakim, it's not too late to pick up your spiritual sword of the Lord once more and fight the good fight of faith. Now, let's move on past verse 1. Uh, let's look at uh, verse 3, which says, At the commandment of the Lord came this upon Judah. Now, much of what is about to happen to Israel is a result of them asking God to depart from them. And as a direct result of God being absent from them in a way he never has been before. But, these nations' attacks against Judah in verse 3 are directly from the Lord. There's no denying that. It says in, I'm sorry, verse 2, rather, the Lord sent against him the bands of Chaldeans, Syrians, Moabites, and the children of Ammon. All of those people groups were directly sent by God to punish Israel. When people often read passages like this, the question they ask is why? Because it seems like such a violent and bloody and horrible thing to do. Why would you send war to your own people? Right? Why would you inflict this kind of pain upon them? Why, God, would these things happen in the the city where your name is, where your house is, the temple. Why? The question is answered with similar questions. Why does a father punish his children? There are some people out there who think that parents shouldn't punish their children at all. That children should just behave however they want to and learn from their own mistakes. And that someday they'll learn by themselves that that kind of behavior uh, hurts them somewhere down the road and they'll change that on their own. I can tell you, they ain't a gonna. God has given children parents for a reason. 
They need guidance. They need instruction. They're just kids. They don't really understand how the world works yet. So they give them parents, the Lord does. And every once in a while, that parent has to punish his children, has to punish his kids. It's necessary, not just uh, for the parents. This isn't so that the parents can rule over the children with a mighty iron fist and make sure those little rugrats stay in line and do as they're told. It's not part of some parental regime. It's in love. It's I care enough about them to punish them for this because I need for them to understand this is not something that they should be doing. This is not good for them. It's not good for the people around them. The same thing holds true about the Lord. We shouldn't see God's punishment in our life as some sort of a spiritual regime that is used to hold us in line so that God can keep control over us and make us do what he wants us to do. No, 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 no. God punishes us for us because he's trying to teach us something. He's trying to keep us from something that we're about to hurt ourselves with. And the punishment is for a hope of correction in the future. Otherwise, why even bother punishing them to begin with? There would be no purpose for it. We've recently finished studying the book of Ezra on Wednesday night, not that long ago. While these people are in the captive lands, they hear about the desolation of Jerusalem and they have a yearning to go back to Jerusalem and restore worship to the house of God. That is a desire and a yearning they would have never had if God had not sent war to their country. They would have stayed in their godless state. So at the command of the Lord came this upon Judah. The Bible says in Proverbs 3 verse 11, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. Neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. Here the Bible teaches us God punishes us because he loves us. And then we see it also says in verse 3, For the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he did, the tragic end of Israel is not solely Manasseh's fault. And we need to understand that. It says here that Babylon came as a result of Manasseh and his sin, but it was not solely Manasseh's fault. He represents the pinnacle of idolatry and lust and violence that had been rampant in Israel and in their kings for a very long time now. Think about it. When was the last time that one of these stories was given from the narrative of God and his will? 
often uh, like it was often in the life of David. You remember in the life of David, it would be from the narrative of uh, David did these things and it displeased the Lord. And so the Lord sent a prophet or the Lord did this to tell David or the Lord did that. And it was from God's narrative about what was going on in his people. We remember this? When was the last time that happened? It's been a long while. The shift in literary perspective is the result of Israel no longer inviting God into their lives. God was asked to leave. And he did. It took him a while. He gave them chance after chance after chance to get right. But eventually he did. You know, the thing about Israel is they're about that big. You know, the thing about Israel's people is on their own, they're not the most genetically uh, uh, superior race on the planet. The Bible refers to the children of Israel as uh, small and weak. But how is it that they are, in fact, so mighty? And how is it, in fact, that they are so impressive on the battlefield and in their politics and in their power as kings when all they rule is a little strip of land in the Middle East? It's because they held within them the power of God. And when they asked God to leave, they lost their secret weapon. They lost their power. When was the last time that God was invited into your life? When was the last time that our lives took his narrative upon them? Which brings us, secondly, there's only two main points in the lesson this morning. Israel's sentencing is executed. It's gone from just being given to now it's going to happen. In 2 Kings 24, we're going to start reading again in verse 10. It says, At that time the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city, and his servants did besiege it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah excuse me, went out of the king of Babylon, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his princes and his officers. And the king of Babylon took him in the eighth year of his reign. And he carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. And he carried away all Jerusalem, and all the princes, and all the mighty men of valor, even ten thousand captives, and all the craftsmen and smiths, none remained, save the poorest sort of the people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon, and the king's mother, and the king's wives, and his officers, and the mighty of the land, and those carried he into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And all the men of might, 
even seven thousand, and craftsmen and smiths a thousand, and all that were strong and apt for war, even them the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. And the king of Babylon made uh, Mataniah, his father's brother, king in his stead, and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 20 and 1 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For through the anger of the Lord it came to pass in Jerusalem and Judah, until he had cast them out from his presence, that Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So Israel's sentencing is executed here, we see. Uh, we see in verse 10 it says the city was besieged. Now, the word besieged quite simply means to be surrounded with hostile troops. Uh, there was nowhere for them to run. There was nowhere they could go in the city of Jerusalem that they could be safe. Every place, everywhere was dangerous. You could have been raided and destroyed at any given moment. That is a terrible terrifying way to have to live. You know, there are many things that besiege the Christian through the course of our daily life. For example, fear. Fear can besiege the Christian. The devil can use fear to surround you in your life and make you feel like there is no place for you to be safe. Amen. He can make you feel like that you're in danger at work. He can make you feel like you're in danger at home. He can make you feel like you're in danger at church and that no place you go has peace or safety to offer you. Bible says in Psalm 31:13, "For I have heard the slander of many, fear was on every side while they took counsel against me. They devised to take away my life." But let me encourage you this morning that God has not given unto us the spirit of fear, but of love and of peace and of a sound mind. God is our solution against fear. Faith cancels fear. It counters it. Because no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, you have within you the ability to say, I am trusting that God's going to take care of me. And if you choose to believe that in your heart of hearts, that will eradicate fear from within you. Another thing that besieges the Christian often in life is trouble or problems. It's no secret that life is full of trouble. It seems like sometimes in some weeks, no matter what you do, it's knocking on your door in a different form every single day. Sometimes multiple forms in a day. One thing after another, it's almost as though trouble follows you everywhere you go. 
The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, we are troubled on every side. That's what Paul said. He said, we are troubled on every side. And sometimes it can feel like that. Like there is trouble and there are problems everywhere you go. Lord knows family can have drama. The Lord did know that. There was a lot of drama in his family at times. There was a lot of drama in his own hometown. We know sometimes there can be drama even within the church. And you might say, oh, that's a result of us not doing, thing the Lord, doing things the Lord's way. And I believe there shouldn't be drama in the church. But you've got to admit, even Jesus had Judas Iscariot. It's just the nature of people sometimes. It's the way it goes. When you invite people in, you're going to have some troubles and some dramas. There are going to be some, what do they call it, Karens? They're going to be people who are just looking to cause trouble. Very troubled, disturbed people, full of anger and hate. Sometimes all we can do is the best we can. Sometimes there seems like we are troubled on every side, but the verse goes on to say, yet not distressed. He said we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. Did you know you can have trouble surrounding you, but not be distressed about it? What would you think about a kind of person who had trouble at work, who had trouble at home, who had trouble at the church house, who had trouble with the law, had trouble on every side, and yet they didn't care about it? Would that seem irresponsible to you? Would it seem as though they had no passion within them? They didn't care about the people who were disturbed by the trouble they made? Is that the kind of thing we think about people like that? Because that's the way the Bible tells us to be. To be troubled on every side, yet not distressed. It's not irresponsible to have the peace of God reigning in your heart. Sometimes people think that we only care based on how much we worry. Your level of love is displayed by your level of fear and worry. That's what the, the world wants you to think. But I'm here to tell you this morning that God gauges love differently than the world does. And that your love is gauged in very different ways with the Lord than it is with the world. You don't have to display worry and fear to display love. You can do that in many different ways. Think of all the ways the Lord displayed love to us. I don't think he ever worried one time. I don't think Jesus ever showed one ounce of fear in his life. And yet he displayed more love to the world than anybody else. We don't have to display fear and anxiety and worry to display love. <coughs> These things besiege us. They're all around us. Spiritual enemies. The Bible says in Psalm 12, 8, The wicked walk on every side when the vilest men are exalted. Sometimes the wicked walk all around us on every side. Sometimes we have spiritual enemies all about us. Yet if the Bible says, if God be for us, who can be against us? There is no trouble that besieges you or that besets you that God cannot handle for you. There is no problem which presents itself in your life that cannot be handled with faith. Then also notice it says that he carried out thence all the treasures of the house of the Lord. 
there in verse 13. I cannot imagine how gut-wrenching it must have been to watch the Babylonians smash and destroy all of the most sacred relics of the temple of the Lord. It reminds me a lot of when I was a kid and uh, we were living in a trailer at that time and my dad went out to try to build a house in front of the trailer. And one thing after another, but he kept at it. He was persevering through it all and uh, had gotten a good way through it. I, I remember standing in there sometimes as a kid. I was five or six, but I remember that. And then I remember uh, one day his shoulder completely blew out and he had to stop working on it. Of course, you've got this half-built structure in the middle of your yard. you got to get rid of it. So he had paid people to come out and take the house he was building apart piece by piece. Now, could you imagine watching somebody tear down something you painstakingly and lovingly built over a long period of time? That's the same kind of thing they're doing here with the temple. Smashing and destroying these sacred relics, watching them carry out these things that meant so much to them. Yet, unlike my father, the people of Israel didn't seem to care too much for these relics. They were different in that way. You say, how could you possibly say that? Well, I can say it because of this. If they were so important to the people of Israel, why didn't they use them? Why didn't they use them to serve the Lord more often? You see, they had these things with them all the time, only the difference being with my illustration and the people of Israel is they never went out. They never worked on it. They never painstakingly and lovingly cared for these things. They had set collecting dust for decades. They didn't care about these things until one day they were smashed and destroyed and gone. What things, my question comes to us this morning then, what things or people in your life would gain a lot more importance to you if you were about to lose them? What things would we make a priority? What things would gain such more value to us if we were about to lose them? Psalm 100 verse 4 says, Enter into his, talking about God, gates with thanksgiving. It's not just a holiday where you eat turkey and stuffing and pie. It's a thing. It's an action we should be. It's something we should have in our lives is thanksgiving. We should meditate on all the things we have to give thanks for before the Lord decides to remind us what we have to give thanks for by taking them away. Remember uh, Jonah's gourd? Who remembers Jonah's gourd? One, two... After Jonah made it to Nineveh, he preached an eight-word message. And he left the city. Never entered in again. He said eight words, left, and found a good hill to watch God destroy Nineveh. Got him a front row seat to the show of the century. To watch God burn these people he hated down to the ground with fire and brimstone. 
got there, got his soda, got his popcorn, got good and set up, and what he saw wasn't what he wanted. What he saw was these people, these Ninevites, these disgusting heathens, getting right with God. That's not what the, that race does. That race steals things. That race, they, they murder people. They're not supposed to be good citizens. They're not supposed to get right with God. He was disgusted by it. You know, there are Christians today that get disgusted when the wrong race of people get right with God. Jonah went to God. He was angry. He said, God, you didn't destroy them. They got right. I told you. I told you if I went and gave them a chance, they'd get saved and they wouldn't go to hell. I wanted them to go to hell. So you know what God does? He grew a giant gourd and it hung over where Jonah was sitting. And it was hot. And that gourd provided him shade. And Jonah learned to love that gourd. Anybody have a favorite tree out in their yard somewhere? Just somewhere you love to go and sit and enjoy? Imagine you woke up and lightning had struck that tree. And it had fallen down and was dead. Overnight, God killed the gourd and dried it up. And Jonah missed that gourd. He was angry that God took his gourd away. He went to God again and he said, God, it's not enough that you didn't send those filthy heathens to hell. Now you took my gourd too? And God says to Jonah, you've learned to love a gourd more than you've learned to love real living, breathing human souls. That is why I took the gourd. Sometimes God does the same to us. Things become more important to us in our life than the people in our life. And sometimes when that happens, God's got to take that thing away from us and say, you need to remember what I said was most important. Having a church isn't about having a building. It's not. Having a church isn't about having a van. It's not about having a, a bank account with thousands of dollars in it. Having a church is about people. And it's about reaching out to people, not just the people in your church, but the people all around us with the hope of Christ and the hope of the gospel. They lost their prized possessions. It says in verse 14 that we've read already that he carried away all Jerusalem and all the princes. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Carrying princes away into Babylon? Where have we heard this before? Nobody knows? Start reading a portion of scripture for you, and you tell me if you can tell me where it's found at. Okay? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand 
with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, king of the master of the eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel, and of the king's seed, and of the princes, in whom was no blemish, but well-favored, and skillful in all wisdom, and cunning in knowledge, and understanding science, such as had ability to them to stand in the king's palace, in whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat, and of the wine which he drank, and nourished them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Any of that ring a bell? Where is that at? You're going to kick yourselves when I tell you. No? I'm, I'm wondering if anybody commented on Facebook with it yet. But uh, I'll check afterwards. I timestamps you too, so I'll know if you answered after I said it. Daniel 1. This is the story of Daniel. This is the story of Hanani and Mishael and Azariah. Anybody know their other names? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's right. We are reading in First Kings, or I'm sorry, Second Kings 24, overlaps with the book of Daniel. And that is what we're reading right now. Remember I told you a while back that the books of the prophets that come after, uh, you have the books of history that we're finishing right now, then you have the books of poetry. And they're like uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Those are the books of poetry. Beyond that, you have what's called the books of uh, prophecy. You have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and that's what you have from them, and then the minor prophets and so forth, and all of the minor prophets serve as almost like commentary to the stories that are taking place in the Samuels and the Kings, mostly the Kings and the Chronicles. But the books of First and Second Chronicles uh, are just a different telling of the same stories that take place in First and Second Kings. But Daniel is overlapping here with what's taking place in 2 Kings 24. We are reaching the end of days, the end of Israel's history. Next week, all the horrors we've seen today, next week, uh, these things won't hold a candle to the horrors that we're going to read about next week. If you're interested, I'm not against you reading ahead, but also those with weak constitutions might want to hang out with the kids next week. And it'll be the end of Israel's history. But the end of one thing is just the beginning of another. So unfortunately, this is only half the story. The rest of Israel's tragic end is told in chapter 25, but we already can see how the freedom they thought they were getting uh, by getting away from God was just captivity in disguise. And how their sins cost them more than they realized they were going to have to pay. Sin always costs more than you think it will. That is our lesson for this morning. I thank everybody for being here and watching on Facebook Live. And we will be back at uh, 5 after.